0: Good morning, church. Uh, my name is Mark, and I've been blessed with the opportunity to lead us through another chapter of Nehemiah this morning. Um, you know, if you recall, we've been in this series called Return and Rebuild, where we're going through Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, and now we're on Nehemiah chapter 8, so that's one I'm going to be sharing with you all today. Um, if you've been participating in Life Group recently, and we're listening this Thursday, you might have heard... Uh, Nehemiah 8 already preached uh, three days ago. This was not planned. Um, But as I was sitting there on Thursday, after getting a little bit nervous about hearing someone else preach the same chapter that's going to be preached today, I was thinking about how amazing it is of how how dense God's word is and how how we can learn from it Um, the first and second and third and, and hundredth time that we read the same passage. So I hope that you won't check out if you already heard that um... preached on three days ago um, it's never it's never a bad idea to read or listen to the same scripture um, over and over so we can understand it to the best of our ability so as you may recall we've been in Ezra and Nehemiah like I said um, which tells us the story of God bringing his once exiled people back into the land that he promised them and then rebuilding Jerusalem with its temple for the purpose of renewing and sustaining the covenantal relationship that he desired with his people so throughout the book of Nehemiah, we've seen several things already. We've seen Nehemiah, the book's author, uh, called from a place of comfort as the king's cupbearer to come and lead God's people. We've seen the city carefully rebuilt and uh, refined over and over by God's called hands. Um, we've seen their work done in the face of threats and mockery from the outside. And we've also seen um, you know ordinances and and the law is set up so that society would be just and uh... fair to all of its residents so Jerusalem's very close to being rebuilt and god uh, god's work of restoring uh... his people to their promised physical p- uh... position is almost complete But scripture talks often about the need for the reformation of the heart, and in this case what's inside the walls you know what's inside the city um, the heart needs to be transformed for anything any changes to be fruitful and everlasting so, Jerusalem's built up their city walls. They've done all these things, uh, and they've defended it well. But it doesn't matter if the society on the inside ends up being crooked and apart from God. There's no reason to defend that. So, God's society must exist on top of a foundation that honors Him and can continually strengthens His relationship with His people, or they'll surely drift on their own and they'll lose the privilege of intimacy with the God of the universe. So by the end of Nehemiah 7, the exiles have settled down in their new homes and they've all, uh, and the walls of the city have been built, and the physical foundation of God's new city has been laid. So in chapter 8, we're going to be seeing the spiritual foundation of the city laid. Uh, We're going to see how God's people pursue this laying of the spiritual foundation through uh, reading and obeying God's word. Um, So we'll focus on how God's people reflect and, and study God's Word with the intention of knowing Him in a deeper way and knowing Him, uh, knowing the work that He's done so that they can build a society that's worth defending. So I'm going to pray. pray as in. God, I just ask that you be with us uh, this morning. I just ask that you, you know, be with us as a community, regardless of wherever we are. Um, God, we need your Spirit to be what uh, brings us together this morning. As we're all in different locations, um, God, I ask that you give me the words that you want to preach to your people. Um, God, help me um, guide us through this chapter and and understand it deeper. God, we want to know you more this morning. We want to know you better than we did yesterday. Um, God, you're so good to know. There's so much to know and be encouraged by you. so, God, I just, just want to um, lift your name up this morning um, so we can we can grow as a church. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, so we're we'll going to be reading all of Nehemiah 8, and uh, there's some extra context to give as well. So I'm going to be breaking up the chapter into three sections as well as going to other parts of Scripture as well that I think will help uh, enhance the Scripture that we're reading. Um, so we're looking to highlight and focus on what God's people do that is helpful and also honoring to God, uh, helpful to themselves and honoring to God. So let's start. We're going to start in the last verse of um, Nehemiah 7 and go into. Um, we're going to read till uh, Nehemiah 8:6. So starting verse seven, in uh, no, chapter seven, when the seventh month came and the Israelites settled in their homes, all the people gathered at the square in front of the water gate. They asked the scribe Ezra to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had given Israel. On the first day of the seventh month, the priest Ezra brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding. While he was facing the square in front of the water gate, he read out of it from daybreak until noon before the men and women and those who could understand. All the people listened attentively to the book of the law. The scribe Ezra stood on a high wooden platform made for this purpose. Mattathiah, Shema, Enneah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maaseiah stood beside him on his right. To his left were Pideah, Mishael, Melchijah, Hashem, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshulam. Ezra opened the book in full view of the people since he was elevated above everyone. As he opened it, all the people stood up. Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and with their hands uplifted all the people, said, Amen, Amen and they knelt low and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Okay, so as I mentioned, the exiles uh, have settled in this newly rebuilt Jerusalem. and They're now gathering to hear Ezra preach the word uh, and read God's law out loud to them. So this practice was instructed by God through Moses that every seventh month, his people would gather and publicly read read the Torah um, for the purpose of recentering their lives around God's word. So I want to point out: this entire chapter has this underlying theme of obedience um, uh, to God's word, and 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 how that leads them to celebration in the end. This event of gathering as one people um, was intentional, and it was itself an act of obedience um, on the part of God's people. And they and it's outlined several times throughout the law of Moses. So right away we see that um, God's law, even at this time, was um, meant for all citizens. So, men, women, uh, and presumably some children, as it says that um, all who had the ability to understand were to gather and hear the words of the law read out loud. Jesus himself even declares that his message is for all who have the ears to hear. Um, so, we know that God's word is for everyone. The story of God's faithfulness to humanity is for everyone. And we should understand this from the beginning if we establish a spiritual foundation that is. Uh, beneficial for our people. You know, God has given us a gift, His Word, and uh, it tells us the story of how He's pursued us throughout the ages, and how He's walked with us since creation, and how He has outlined what obedience He desires from us in return. So they're reading Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers. And in those books are stories that would remind them that God has remained faithful to his people even through their disobedience. And he's given them the guidelines on how to pursue him best for their sake and his glory. So, um, if you don't have a daily or weekly practice of engaging with God's word and submitting to it, um, I'd suggest that you start small. You know, maybe start with um, a verse of the day from uh, an app on your phone or. Maybe make a list of verses um, that you kind of know, but you want to memorize and commit to remembering them um, so that you can pull them out of your back pocket when things get tough or when you get discouraged. Um, maybe dedicate 10 minutes a day, 15 minutes a day um, to knowing God's Word and connecting with Him. Because I'll, t- I'll tell you that the the most fruitful times in Scripture that I have, um, you know, as a as a non-pastor, non-seminary student, because this word is not just for the leaders, it's it's for everyone. Um, it's when I sit alone and I read and I write and I pray. You, know, you can come to church every week hoping to hear the word preached accurately to you, and um, that could be the, the foundation for your relationship with God, um, but it's just not sustainable. Um, you can't, you know, you can't rely on this because there's always that chance for church to go away. Um, you know, what what happens when uh, a pandemic hits the world and churches shut down, so everyone has to go online and they you know, internet connections bad and they're connecting and, and they were relying on hearing God's word through the sermons or through um, different preachers. But then, you know, the internet connection's bad so they just turn away altogether because, you know, it's not it's not fun anymore. It's not the same as it used to be. And then you're no longer engaging with God's word. Uh, you can't rely on on church service. You can't rely on preachers that you don't know. Um, in every instance, um, there's nothing like sitting alone with God and hearing what He has to say to you. So this is an act of be- obedience and for your benefit. So next, as we read, we see that everyone has gathered to hear Ezra read God's law and story to them. They, of course, didn't have the same uh, handheld access to the world to the word as we do now. Um, so that here, hear someone committed to reading the words um, to them. So as he reads, we notice that he is standing on this risen uh, wood platform uh, and, and reading it to his people. So this ought to feel very familiar to us because we often see our pastors and our preachers singled out among a congregation to deliver what God says there's a clear symbolic purpose to this, that anything from scripture, it's God's word from above to us. It may be Ezra speaking and occasionally explaining, but ultimately this message ought to be recognized as from God alone. We, his people, his sheep, um, ought to gather intently to listen and learn what he has for us to learn. Ezra's not being honored, but in, it says that in response to what was read, they fell to their faces and worshipped God let us be people that recognize the godly authority behind the words of Scripture so I'm going to keep going in Nehemiah 8 I'm going to start in verse 7 and read till verse 12 Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Aqab, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maaseah Kaleidah, Azariah, Josabed, Hanan, and Peleah who were Levites explained the law to the people as they stood in their places they read out of the book of, of the law of God, translating and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was read. Nehemiah, the governor, as were the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing people, said to all of them, This day is holy to the Lord your God, do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping as they as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go and eat what is rich, drink what is sweet, and send portions to those who have nothing prepared, since today is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, because the joy of the Lord is your strength. And the Levites quieted all the people, saying, "But be still, since today is holy. Don't grieve." Then all the people began to eat and drink and send portions and have a great celebration, because they had understood the words that were explained to them. So as Ezra is reading uh, God's laws as, de- as decreed uh, in the Torah, we see the Levites are moving throughout the crowd and explaining what's being talked about sometimes translating. This was a unique duty given to the tribe of Levi to carry out work and assistance to the priests. The priests were essentially acting as mediators between God and his people and the Levites helped with that. The easiest way to state this is that God set apart the tribe of Levi to minister to God's people. In Numbers 16, eight through nine, it says, and Moses said to Korah, here now you sons of Levi, is it too small a thing for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to Himself and to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord, and to stand before the congregation and to minister to them, the reason I point this history out is because we can conclude something valuable about God's heart thanks to the commands and structure He's given us. The conclusion is that God desires an accurate understanding of His word amongst His people. He dedicated an entire tribe of Israel to do this job of ministering to His people. He takes seriously that his people are striving together and understanding uh, Scripture so that they can all be brought nearer to himself. So, what does this mean for us? It means we ought to be a people that actively strives together to understand God's word and to encourage one another to press on in knowledge. Nowadays, clearly, we don't have uh, a tribe of Levi, we don't have one group dedicated to ministering to people. Um, but in 1 Peter 2 9, it says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. We have adopted this role from the Levites of ministering to the masses and leading each other to a deeper understanding of God's light. Let us be people that remember this responsibility and take it seriously because we should be taking seriously what God takes seriously as he shows us through his law and structure. We also see where exactly an accurate understanding of Scripture leads us to worship. God's people are reading the story of his faithfulness to them, as in Genesis and Exodus. Then they read on, and they read into his commands, and they're likely realizing that they're not abiding by the laws that he's given them. And it leads them to weep over their disobedience. Thankfully, we see the priests remind them that the purpose of understanding God's word is not to inspire sadness and shame, but to encourage rejoicing and worship. God has continually walked with his people and, as evidence of his love and faithfulness to them, he has invited them back into this covenantal relationship and offered them the opportunity to repent, even after their disobedience. They were once foreign to God and ignorant to his wishes, but God has a way of pursuing his people. In Ephesians 2:17 through 20, it says, He, Jesus, came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. God's given us knowledge of His Son and He's given us the opportunity to step into his household. He's given us the chance to repent and embrace the relationship that He's desired with us since creation. So how could that message not lead us to overflowing joy? Of course it's not supposed to result in our in our uh, weeping for long. So if your default re- if your default response to Scripture is to look at your uh, own incompetence, then you will surely weep. Uh, scripture is intimidating. It can be intimidating, um, but it's me- not meant to lead you into sorrow. So I want to give a short history lesson that I think will un- uh, enhance our understanding of this passage. Uh, so I keep using this phrase of you know God's story of faithfulness to His people. I think there are obviously many instances of this in Scripture, but I want to highlight the one that I think that they most that would most resonate with these people. Because this wasn't just some supernatural sense of joy that came upon them as they read the words of uh, on a piece of paper, you know these are real stories that are so powerful that it led that inspired joy and celebration on their parts. So here's a story. So when the Hebrew people were in Egypt, they became slaves to the Egyptians. This was not always the case. They actually had they actually once had favor with the throne god didn't like this new enslavement so he used moses to communicate to the new pharaoh that he desired his people to be free so that they could worship him when communication with pharaoh didn't work god sent plagues and hardships egypt's way at the climax of these plagues and hardship after pharaoh refused to give up his people uh... god decided to slaughter the firstborns of all the egyptians and meanwhile commanded the israelites to slaughter a lamb for each of their families and smear its blood on the home's doorpost this sacrifice is, is what would spare them when god is uh, slaughtering everyone in the in the city all the firstborns so finally pharaoh releases god's people and then he briefly chases them but they escape uh and then they're and then they're in this time of wandering throughout the deserts and the wilderness for a while so during this time of wandering was when God had them live in booths, or tabernacles, uh, which are temporary dwellings. As you, as you led them to a promised newer and better land, they dwelled in these uh, tabernacles, and uh, they were promised that they would once dwell with him if they kept his word. So if you're a Christian today, I hope this story sounds a little bit familiar. Everyone listening today has experienced slavery to sin, We all know what it's like to feel trapped. We know what it feels like to fail and sin because we experience shame and guilt when we do. We've experienced sadness when tragedy hits, and we've felt betrayal when we've been forgotten. We know what it feels like to be helpless, but while you were helpless and in slavery, Jesus came and died as a sacrifice to save you. While you were in slavery and the weight of sin was crushing, the sacrificial lamb was provided. Not only would this lamb deliver you from slavery, but he, almost prom- he also promises to shepherd you, guiding you into his home, into his household for you to dwell with him for all eternity. This is a promise if you follow him. And uh, he promises you freedom from sin and the opportunity to dwell with God and worship him for eternity. Our God and Savior is worth following in obedience. So back to God's people in this passage. What are they doing? Well, they're weeping from realizing that they haven't measured up uh, they're reminded of God's rescue from Egypt and they realize that there is worship and joy to be had in response to God's, uh, to God bringing back his exiles and offering a renewed r- relationship. They realize what an amazing thing it is to be delivered from sa- slavery and given a second chance to be shepherded and kept safe. And so they worship. The story of God rescuing his people leads to overwhelming worship. So as Christians now, I want us to remember a few verses to help focus our worship. You know, write them down or read them for yourself or reflect on them. In Romans three twenty-three through 25 it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. And then in John eight thirty-five through 36 it says, now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Let us be a people that doesn't get caught up in the sadness of our own incompetence. Jesus desires your, fa- your freedom, and he invites you to join his family. So let's keep going on, Nehemiah 8, starting in verse 13 to the end on the second day the family heads of all the people along with the priests and levites assembled before the scribe ezra to study the words of the law they found written in the law how the lord had commanded through moses that the israelites should dwell in shelters during the festival of the seventh month so they proclaimed and spread this news throughout the towns and in jerusalem saying go out to the hill country and bring back branches of olive wild olive myrtle palm and other leafy trees to make shelters just as it is written. The people went out, brought back branches and made shelters for themselves on each of their rooftops and courtyards, the court of the house of God, the square by the water gate, by the water gate, and the square by the Ephraim gate. The whole community that had returned from exile made shelters and lived in them. The Israelites had not celebrated like this from the days of Joshua son of Nun until that day. And there was tremendous joy. Ezra we read out of the book of law, of the law of God every day from the first day to the last. The Israelites celebrated the festival for seven days. And on the eighth day, there was an assembly according to the ordinance. So after the very productive first day of the feast, where God's people were reading his word, and they're being, they're being driven to joy and worship and fellowship with each other, um, the leaders in the community, you know, Ezra, Nehemiah, the, the household heads, come together with this mindset of, you know, we want more. We want to grow in our knowledge of God's faithfulness. We want to continue our worship with Him. We want to know His Word deeply and accurately so we can obey Him. Uh, In fact, it's vital for our families and community that we do this. So they're reading and they realize, wait a minute, uh, we're not being completely faithful right now. It says here in the seventh month that we should be building and dwelling in booths similar to how our ancestors were when God brought them out of Egypt. So what they're reading about is called the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles. This is a sort of ritual or celebration that God commanded his people to engage with every seventh month of the year. They were to gather a bunch of stakes and materials and create for themselves shelters that they would temporarily live in and worship. The purpose for this was for them to remember that during the Exodus, God made them dwell in temporary shelters while he led them to this promised land. In Leviticus 23:41 41-43, it says, Celebrate this as a festival to the Lord for seven days each year. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. Celebrate it in the seventh month. Live in temporary shelters for seven days. All native-born Israelites are to live in such shelters. So your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in temporary shelters when I brought them out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So this practice, this Feast of Booths, is actually meant for God's people to benefit and remember the work that God has done. It's for their benefit that they obey what God commanded them to do because it would bring his people into a deeper understanding of his love for them. So as a result of the leaders reading God's law intently, they realize that there's more to do. And not only is there more to do, but there's more joy and worship to be had. So they build their shelters, and as a result, it says that they ended up worshiping unlike any time since the time of Joshua, which was long before this. The majority of these people studying likely didn't really know what they were getting into. Obviously, uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, the priesthood, they probably uh, understood what they were doing with this Feast of Booths, but a lot of them, it is possible that they are reading about this for the first time. Or at least they're about, reminded about this feast after forgetting about it. But when they learn what they must do, they do it, and they're led into a deep worship of God. This gives me evidence for my next point. Simple obedience to God leads you into a deeper worship of Him. They could have easily continued learning about all the great and amazing miracles uh, that God performed early in the Torah. But they would have gained this sort of detached love of him because this was all in the past and, and now they are you know previous exiles. Um, so this was a long time ago. But at some point, the words and commands that you find in Scripture must turn into action. James 1.25 says, But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard but doing it, they'll be blessed in what they do. To see, God's people are not meant to simply be learners, but doers um, also. This is partially for the rest of the world's sake because we're trying to spread this message of freedom that Christ offers us to the rest of the world, but it also leads us to a deeper relationship with God. The Feast of Booths is not just an arbitrary guideline that God gives His people to prove uh, their seriousness towards Him. Its primary purpose is to deepen and strengthen their trust and understanding of His providence um, by reflecting on the times of the Exodus. So, let us be people who seek to understand God's word and obey it because it will strengthen our relationship and trust in Him. For us Christians today, God also has us dwelling in temporary shelters, our bodies. When we die and we arrive at God's uh, new heavenly kingdom, these bodies that are prone to sin and prone to disobedience will fade away. See, as I mentioned before, it, it just so happens that this practice, uh, the Feast of Booths, was also meant to impact outsiders as well. In Deuteronomy 16, 13 through 15, it says, You shall keep the Feast of Booths seven days when you have gathered in the produce from your threshing floor and your winepress. You shall rejoice in your feast you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns. For seven days you shall keep the feast to the Lord your God at the place that the Lord will choose, because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands so that you will all together uh, be joyful. So for this, I'm sort of abandoning the context of the story because I realized that as Jerusalem's just been rebuilt, it likely doesn't have the uh, travelers, the sojourners. Uh, but I want to point out that we see in God's law this added a layer of meaning to this feast. So we see that God's intent with this feast is also to include everyone in the town at the time, regardless of whether they were his people or not. This is evidenced by his mentioning of uh, including sojourners and, and also uh, widows and orphans. And sojourners are just temporary residents. They're They're traveling, um, not meant to stay for long, but they're still to be included. So if God desires our obedience in the commands He gives, and those commands involve inclusion of people who are sojourners and widows and orphans, it seems reasonable to conclude that God desires our obedience because it will result in His compassionate character to be on display for outsiders to experience. Mark 4.21, this is Jesus speaking, He said to them, do you bring in a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? I'm sure we've all heard this uh, verse before, but what I want to remind you is, is that when God's people obey Him, the world benefits. Everyone is a temporary resident here on earth. The difference between Christ's followers and everyone else is the fact that Christians will emerge free from sin and won't be subdued to its, its punishment. If we look around the world right now, I'd say things are in a bit of a disarray. Not only do humans feel generally closer to death than they have for several decades, thanks to uh, some pandemic, uh, but there's also severe cultural and political uh, tension going on right now. Everyone's looking for someone or something to put their trust and faith in. Some really wanna look at celebrities and popular people and model their lives based off of that. Some people uh, wanna exclusively look to political leaders um, to trust so they would receive freedom and protection. Many falsely recognize their fellow neighbors to be their enemies, when the true enemy is much more deceptive. Many see the church as, a, as their enemy. But here we are, the church, knowing exactly what the world needs. We know that freedom doesn't come from politics or, or once you reach wealth and status. We know that the world doesn't just need political leaders that come and go. It needs a king. And as we as God's people and we as God's people need to be the first to submit to this king above all the universe, um, a king over everything that the world is witnessing right now, if we're to rebuild on a spiritual foundation worth defending, obviously I'm not advocating for us to uh, practice the Feast of Booths. Um, I believe that part of the law has been fulfilled through Jesus Christ already. But what I am advocating for is to practice simple obedience of Jesus' callings and to us as his followers. You know, in, in examining God's law in the Old Testament, we begin to see and understand his heart. In examining and following Jesus in the New Testament, we begin to experience and receive God's heart. It says in Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-six 26-28, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people, and I will be your God." God promises us His Spirit when we simply follow Him. This includes both being aware of the work that He's done and completed for our sake, but it also means living in simple obedience to the callings we find in Scripture. We need to follow Jesus and follow His example. What is keeping you from a deeper relationship with Jesus? If there's anything in the way, be it ignorance or fear, or be it the sheer magnitude of scripture that you feel responsible for knowing fully before you can act, Um, maybe it's just struggling with his callings, I want to say to you that there's nothing in the world that is worth holding you back from the man who lived and died so that he could be with you. All it could take is one act of obedience in your life that God will use for your benefit in his glory. All it could take is one act of following God and allowing Him to lead you into unknown territory and then then He'll lead you also into joy and worship. Jesus is the culmination of God's word and law and we learn to follow Him, then we'll know God's character and the unstoppable force of His endless love for us and the world will see it too. Let's pray. God, I just want to lift up Your name this morning. Um, I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you for the knowledge of your son, Jesus. God, thank you for sending Jesus for the for the sake of, of freeing us from slavery. God, thank you that we have the opportunity to turn to you, that we have the opportunity to repent and uh, and uh, submit to you. God, I'm, I'm just... I'm grateful for the opportunity to get to know you. I'm thankful for your word. God, I just ask that you be with our church this week. Um, Let us pursue you through your word, but not just in understanding your word, but also in obeying it. God, let us, uh, let sin just fall away, let the shackles of sin fall away from us as we uh, follow you. God, we know that you have joy in worship and in celebration for us in the end. Um, So God, I ask that you encourage us through that. Guide us through your word so we can know you better. Jesus, we lift up your name. um, We wanna worship you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.